You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. It's been a bit of a break between episodes, but welcome back to listeners. Today's episode, we're going to talk eczema with Dr Richard Blow, a immunologist from Perth Children's Hospital now, and Sandra Vale, who is the National Coordinator for ASCIA. Welcome, guys. Hi. Welcome, Richard. Welcome back, Richard. So today, it's a really interesting topic, eczema. It's a really common problem. The first question I think a lot of GPs get asked is, what are the triggers for eczema and what are the practical steps that we can advise patients to help uh, manage and avoid eczema flaring up? There are many triggers for eczema, so it's very much multifactorial illness. A lot of patients are sent to me looking for food allergies, but food allergies is actually quite uncommon. Mm-hmm. So in patients with mild eczema, probably only 3% would have food allergies exacerbating the eczema. Certainly in severe eczema, it is higher. So there are things that make eczema worse, such as heat, uh, rough surfaces, so a a baby crawling on carpet, wearing certain clothing, even some uh, woolen or polyester type clothing can irritate the skin. Using soaps, infant bubble baths, and certain moisturizers also can contain chemicals that may irritate the skin. So often people think something natural is harmless but there are now studies showing that natural creams that contain tea tree oil or peanut oil can actually irritate the skin and some studies actually suggest maybe related to the rise in food allergy. Yeah so it's an interesting phenomenon this concept of triggers isn't it because I think we probably think about eczema as being well the public perception is that it's a systemic response but actually what you're saying is a lot of it is just a topical and a climactic sort of response basically Uh, it's a combination so yes in some patients they can eat a food and it is more of a systemic response but there's so many triggers i've got eczema and sometimes i use the term the gods of eczema are frowning on me because I actually don't even know what's exacerbated my eczema and I blame a new detergent or a new clothes or lots of things and we often don't find a cause for it. Yeah, but we probably do underestimate the role of say heat and soaps and and things that break down the oil on skin. Definitely, it's very important to understand that eczema is dry skin and one of the best things one can do is use emollients. I use that term interchangeably with moisturizers and use it frequently on the skin. Okay, and because we get these questions around diet, patients persistently come back to diet. What's a good approach to sort of handling the patient who's locked in on diet as a cause for eczema? Take a very good history. I think that would guide you. I wouldn't investigate blindly. So sometimes uh, GPs order a blood test. And the blood test uh, they often ask is a food mix that has six common foods, so milk, soy, egg, uh, peanut, wheat, and fish. It comes back positive. And sometimes the patients are given the advice, you're allergic to all six foods, and Mm. that's not true. You just have allergy antibodies, and because uh, patients with eczema have high IgE, you have sometimes a positive test, which only demonstrates you've got IgE antibodies to the foods, does not necessarily mean you're allergic to the food. So take a really good history. If they're drinking milk, if they're eating peanut on a regular basis, and the eczema is really good sometimes and exacerbates other times, 
it's almost always not the food if they're taking the uh, food every day. So try and stay away from rest as a test, as a general rule, yeah. is, is your advice, because it's, it's got a high false positive rate and it just confuses the picture of, of what could be triggering eczema. Very much so. And when parents get the results, they see it's positive to six foods. Yeah. It's not rare that we see a child that has been stopped milk, egg, wheat, peanut, fish and soy and there are significant dietary issues. So uh, often they uh, are not well nourished and sometimes lack uh, uh, vital nutrients. Okay, um, so let's talk about emollients because there's really good evidence for using emollients right from the newborn sort of phase. What do you recommend around emollients and what do you find patients find easiest with emollients? There are a couple of studies now showing that if you use emollients moisturizers almost from day one, you may actually reduce the development of eczema. Mm -hmm. The other one that's really interesting also is that if you use emollients early, it may actually prevent food allergy. So there's some studies showing that uh, if you eat peanut or you've got egg on your hand and you touch a dry skin and eczema skin, the absorption of the food may actually lead to food allergy. Mm. Not all emollients are the same, so it's important uh, for your audience to know the difference between lotions, creams, and ointment. I almost never use a lotion, so lotions have a lot of water in it, yeah. uh, very little oil. It does very little to moisturize the skin, it just cools the skin. Mm. Creams are definitely better than lotions, there's a little bit more oil to it, but it's also got a lot of water in it and sometimes it stings the patients and not all creams are the same. They have preservatives in some of the creams, so it's important to realise that certain preservatives in creams can exacerbate and irritate the skin. Mm -hmm. Ointments are what I favour, they are a lot more oil than water in it. It definitely seals the moisture in. It's a little bit greasy sometimes, but it works much better than lotions and creams. Yeah, look, that's great advice. So try and prioritise using or not using lotions and more ointments than creams because they're greasier and oilier. They're a bit more likely to last longer in terms of the moisturising effect. A lot of people don't love the ointments because they leave the clothes looking really greasy stained. And it's important sometimes to work with the family. Yeah. If they don't like the ointments and you keep pushing the ointments, they're not going to use it. Yeah. So then say, right, let's use the creams. I'd rather have a child or uh, an adult use creams twice a day than nothing. Yeah. So it's important. Sometimes you can just use the ointments at night time when it's less obvious that they're yeah. all greasy during the day with yeah. in front of their friends particularly, yeah. and then use the creams during the day. Mm. And I, I guess... Putting a, a emollient on really from an early age is often a bit counterintuitive for a lot of mums in particular because they think, you think, oh, baby skin's the, the most soft and supple skin. Why would we need to do anything to it? But moisturising it makes a big difference. Uh, it does. I was going to say, I think you can also use the creams as part of your baby massage. So rather than using a massage oil, use a moisturiser cream yep. and, and then you're optimising the moisture of your baby's skin but also getting that important benefits from baby massage yep, at the same the time. So here's my little tip for emollient. So having one son who's got quite bad eczema, try not to get your hands in a big tub of it. You've got to use a spoon to dispense it out because it contaminates with bacteria quite quickly and easily, particularly if you you know that, leave that tub sitting for, for months at a time. So, 
And one of the things about uh, the ointments is uh, most of them don't have preservatives, yeah. which then makes the risk of infection an issue. So, so definitely a spoon. Okay, that's great. Look, so the next topic really is the use of topical steroids, which are kind of the mainstay of most people's management plans. Tell us a bit more about your approach to using topical steroids and some practical tips for GPs. I guess the most important advice is do not be afraid of topical steroids. I think the community is scared of steroids and the terms that some health professionals use steroids sparingly, use it only for two weeks. I think that's the wrong advice. You've got to know your steroids. You've got to know the potency of your steroids. Make sure you use adequate potency and use adequate amount. So some people, when you ask them how long does a tube last, and they say a month, and you know definitely they're underutilizing. Mm. So uh, your audience might want to look up something called a fingertip unit, where you have an amount of ointment or cream onto the fingertip, and it's about 0.5 of a gram of steroid. And surprisingly, you need two fingertip units for a back uh, of an infant. And when you mention that, they say, wow, that's a lot. It isn't. It's actually the right amount. But you need to know your steroids, so mild, moderate, potent, and uh, highly potent. And not be afraid of the potent and highly potent. If you need it, use it. Yeah. So a lot of people, I think, do use it too sparingly. And also perhaps just being aware of the areas where absorption is not very high. Uh, and then also, I guess, the few areas that absorption is high. Yes, yeah, certainly um, the face, the axillary region around the groin region, uh, the absorption probably is higher. Yep. But if you've got a lot of eczema, you can use uh, potent steroids, but stop it when the eczema improves and use less potent steroids. Yeah. So I sometimes use more potent steroids on the face. Usually it's a don't use potent steroids, but you might need it for one or two days, control the eczema, and then switch to less potent steroids. Great, that's, that's really helpful. So having a framework of high potency, medium potency, low potency, using them appropriately and I guess consistently is, is the key thing. So you're not going through constant application and withdrawal, application and withdrawal, and making sure that the patients really understand their use well. A lot of patients use the steroids when the eczema is really bad. Mm. You need to teach the patients use it when the eczema starts getting worse. You'll use a lot less steroids if you use it earlier. And when you let people know, the Australian College of Dermatology has got a position paper where they've um, put all the risks versus benefits. And they've shown studies where children have been on steroid creams for up to a year, and there's no or minimal thinning on almost all the children. Yeah. So the time where you're really at risk of steroid overdosing is where you've got occlusive dressings, isn't it? If you use highly potent steroids, With occlusive dressings, and you use it for many, many days. Yeah. So, and that, that's not the vast majority of general practice work with eczema. That's sort of probably specialist and hospital-based yeah. eczema. Okay, so let's move on to some of the interesting things that you can do for eczema. Let's talk about practical antibacterial measures and, and why do antibacterial measures work for eczema? Certain bacteria, like Staphylococcus, inhabits all our skin. In eczema, when you have an infection, it becomes what we call a super antigen. It switches on the immune system. It causes more inflammation, more itch. You scratch it, you break the skin. Mm. And it then becomes, again, a vicious cycle. Mm. 
Hmm. People don't realize that eczema doesn't scar. It's actually infected eczema. So when people show all your previous scars, it's actually not the eczema. It's the scratching, the breaking the surface of the skin and a secondary infection. And when you treat the infection appropriately and early, I rarely use topical antibacterials. If it's that bad, I usually use oral antibiotics. But it's also important to think about prevention of infections. So something as simple as a bleach bath used regularly actually decreases the bacterial load and decreases the risk of secondary bacterial infection. Yeah, so this is where I find it quite interesting, and we'll come to the idea of what you do, Sandra, but my observation is, are we actually treating infection or are we actually treating carriage? Because I suspect it's carriage a lot of the time, because the times I've seen bleach baths have quite a profound effect. Often you don't see a lot of infected skin at all, and you're just you know, you're clearing the bacteria from the system, basically. So, you know, that's the interesting thing, because I think a lot of GPs are, they're quite switched on to the idea of getting cellulitis when it's it's there, but we're really sort of tra- talking about treating relatively quiescent infection, aren't we? The jury is still out on if uh, the skin's not infected, should you actively look for staphs? Because if you swap a lot of patients with eczema, they will have staph, and it's almost impossible to eradicate it. Certainly, when there's early infection, that's the time to stop it from progressing. But minimizing or reducing the staph, there are some studies that suggest that that helps improve control of the eczema. A very important lesson is to realize that if you've got eczema that's a bit infected, people are scared of using steroid creams around it. And that's the wrong thing. You can use your steroid, uh, topical steroid preparations on it, and you should. Uh, They think, oh, it's infected. If we put the steroid cream, it's going to make it worse. If you don't control the inflammation, the infection is just going to keep continuing. So you can still use, and you should use, topical steroids, even if there is secondary bacterial infection of the skin. Great. And Sandra, let's go through it. Take us through what a bleach bath involves. So a bleach bath is adding unscented 4% bleach to a a bath and it's 12 mils of bleach to 10 litres of water. Uh, So it's very dilute. It's similar to swimming in a chlorinated pool. And some practitioners will recommend adding bath oil to that and some practitioners will also recommend adding some salt to that as well. And you make up the bath and your child just has a bath as normal. You don't keep them in there too long. And when you take them out of the bath, you just pat them dry so that you're keeping their skin still a little bit moist. And then you can apply your steroids and moisturizer straight away afterwards. Sometimes you might want to do a wet dressing as well. So the wet dressings are for when the eczema is is particularly bad and they're waking from itch. So, you know, practically speaking for most baths, it's probably about, it's putting about 50 mils of bleach in, you know, and it's any old brand from Coles or Woolies bleach. As long as it's unscented and 4% household bleach. Bleach, yep. Yeah, and we would recommend that people measure it once and then mark their bathtub so that they're not having to measure it uh, every time they make a bath. And the other thing is the temperature of the water, so no warmer than 32 degrees. Yeah, so relatively tepid. And they go in from head to toe, right? 
Yes, yeah. you want them. You, you want to, to bath them from head to toe. You want to get to where the staff is. So on the hair in particular, behind and so the forth. ears. Yep. Yep. And, and uh, you don't actually have to rinse off. Yeah. The bath as well. That's also important. People think you've got to rinse it off. No, you don't. Uh, so this is where I get to put my tip in. Make sure you have white towels afterwards because it does bleach the towels a little bit. Um, but it, it really does seem to make a big uh-huh, difference. That explains why my bath mats. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so you just touched on wet dressings, which are another really simple and easy sort of mechanism that parents of eczema sufferers can, can apply. So take us through what a wet dressing looks like. So a wet dressing is where you apply a wet layer and then a dry layer over the top to try and seal in as much moisture into the skin as possible. And you can do this just using clothing. So firstly, a wet layer of clothing and then a dry layer of clothing over the top and you leave that on the child until the wet layer starts to dry and then you remove it, you apply your steroids and your moisturiser again and then dress them and, and again you would perhaps do this in the evening so that the child can go through the night without scratching. And I can hear the outcry from mothers across Australia, they're dripping all over the carpet. Well, the wet layer is squeezed out, so it is moist, but um, but they aren't literally dripping everywhere. And ideally what you would do in the time that they have their wet dressing on is have some quality time with them, read stories, play with them, so that you're also distracting them from the fact that they are wearing a wet layer under a dry layer. And I would say use it as quality time if you can. Great. So look, seeing we've got the chance, we might move on to talk about the new medicines that are available. And a lot of the big changes in pharmacotherapy in in many diseases are these biological agents, Richard. Uh, so we're, we're seeing the this new biological agent that's come out in America called Dupilumab, um, which I'm told is about $35,000 for a year's supply. So it's a very expensive treatment at the moment. But invariably, we see these molecules come in and they get cheaper and the, the price goes down. So... You know, this is probably one to watch for a lot of GPs out there as, as a drug of the future, of the near future, really, isn't it? Yes, we now understand a lot more about eczema. We understand uh, about the T cells involved and various interleukins or cytokines. So uh, this uh, medication blocks R4 and R13. And it is now, I, I believe, registered in Australia, but it is not available, partly I suspect for cost issues. We have no idea what the price is in Australia, but in America, I've been told it's about $35,000 US if you don't have an insurance company you know, helping for it. Yeah. But it will, uh, looking at some of the publications uh, that have come out for patients with moderate severe eczema make a huge difference, I think, in the care of these relatively small group of patients. Yeah, and I think that's what's quite striking about this class of medicines is, is how profound the efficacy is. It, it's, it seems to be massive, doesn't it? Uh, it is. Certainly this product is given by a needle every two weeks, but it has made a, a huge difference. At present, uh, it's available only for adults uh, overseas, uh, but uh, there are studies coming now for adolescents, which makes a huge difference because we haven't touched uh, about quality of life, about the eczema. We've talked about infection and all that, but when you've got a skin disease that affects potentially your face, your hands, a lot of young adults are very embarrassed about it. It affects quality of life. Depression is not that uncommon in patients with moderate severe eczema. Yeah, it does have such a, a big effect on people's lives. So, look, just on the topic of demography, 
thoughts about why eczema is so prevalent in Australia? Because we, we do see these quite significant spikes in, in Britain and in Australia and, and other sort of, I guess, developed locations. What are the thoughts on that? It's increasing in Australia. I used to use 15% a few years ago. Recently, I said 20%. But the latest study coming out late last year called the Health Nut Study in four-year-olds, it's up to 30%. Yeah. So it's increasing. I don't think it's just raised awareness. We don't know why. It's like many allergic diseases. There are probably multifactorial so certainly the way perhaps our gut bacteria has changed may be affecting it. But there are theories again of vitamin D and perhaps uh, the way we introduce our foods or the way we uh, change our foods. But you bring up very good points about uh, that it seems to be more of a problem in developed countries. So Asians who move from Asian countries to Australia their children actually have really bad eczema compared to their siblings who are born in overseas uh, countries and their parents. So it's not just genes because the gene hasn't changed. Same parents, the environment has changed. Mm. Until we understand more, it's very hard to switch off um, eczema. We know that there are certain genes involved. There's something called filabrin that helps keep moisture in the skin. But the parents have this filabrin defect, but if they're in a developing country, Eczema's not an issue, but if they come to a country, if they've got the gene defect and a change in the environment, eczema becomes a big issue. The worst kids that I see are actually children from Chinese or Indian families. And I think that's, that was something I, I discovered when I did a presentation on eczema recently, that the racial differences are different, uh, and the ratio of Asian to African skin to Caucasian skin is about six times uh, prevalence amongst Asians compared to a, a two and a half times prevalence, I think, in Africans and mm. all compared to Caucasians. So it does probably relate to uh, racial heritage and, and the effect mm-hmm. that that has in terms of the prevalence. Yeah. Um, but if you are Asian and you are in Asia, it's not expressing itself, but you've got to come as well. There's, there's a, obviously an environmental component as well. It's a combination of genes and environment. Fascinating. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. So thank you, Richard, and thank you, Sandra, for that. And that's the end of the episode.